Welcome to the Fix the Future show, the podcast where we explore how investors can do good while also making good money. I'm Algie Hall, investment editor at Fix the Future, and I'm joined this month by Steve Clapham. Steve has spent three decades working as an equity analyst in various guises. He trained as an accountant before moving into the city where he became a top sell-side analyst. After 15 years, he was poached by a hedge fund client and went on to become a partner and head of research at two multi-billion dollar funds. Then, in 2018, sensing that age had become an obstacle to his career, he decided to set up a training firm behind the balance sheet, which has since taught thousands of professional and also private investors hands-on skills, including forensic accounting techniques. Steve is also the host of the Behind the Balance Sheet podcast, author of the excellent book, The Smart Money Method, How to Pick Stocks Like a Hedge Fund Pro, and he regularly publishes articles on his Behind the Balance Sheet substack. You're a busy man, Steve. You're talking about things that I've done over a period of years. I mean, I wrote the book two, two three years ago. And everybody goes on about how long it takes to write a book. And I was a bit shocked because Neil Ferguson, who is also a fellow Glaswegian, was on the Tim Ferriss podcast and he was talking about how many references a book should have. And I think my book had a reference, maybe had one or two <laughs> references. So yeah, the 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 substack, the weekly substack takes a bit of time. And the podcast takes a bit of time. People I think think underestimate how long it takes to prepare for a podcast. Yeah, they well they just they just get to hear the the end product. But um yeah they should it should seem simple I'm told. Um or it should look simple. Um so and anyway, I mean I, I think actually what you're saying about your book, I mean I'm not surprised it doesn't have so many um references because a lot of it's born of experience. And um actually one of the first things I want to ask about is your experience in spotting Kind of aggressing accounting, aggressive accounting techniques, and um, and uh, outright fraud um, through looking forensically at company accounts. And um, one of the reasons I'm so interested in this is because when I took this job, and I was told, you know, the job you're going to have is looking at companies that fix the future. I um, I thought, you know, this is a perfect place to hang out if you are up to no good. You know, you wrap yourself in a cloak of virtue. Um, I was just wondering, you know. Is 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 that something I should be worried about? And is that something that people who are um, investing with a kind of ESG mandate be, should be particularly watchful for? Yeah, I think they should be. I think I, I don't have any evidence or any data points that say you know companies that are good at ESG are also good at cheating. In fact, sadly today, almost every company is good at cheating. It's extraordinary how many companies are manipulating their earnings to make them look better than they are. It is, it's, it's just an all-time record in my experience. I've been doing this for a long time, and I've never seen so many companies. I mean, if I, every company I pick up, I find, oh, that's a bit interesting. They're being, being a bit pushy there. The, the cloak of virtue, though, it's a very clever um, term that you've used because Often, when companies are up to no good, they paint a picture. There's a you know a whiter than white picture. You know, think about Wirecard, think about Theranos, and um, 
it would be surprising if ESG were a big exception to that because it's just another, it's a bandwagon and people are jumping on the bandwagon, notably loads of asset managers jumping on the ESG bandwagon. They've got no clue about E. I'm not sure what they know about S. And G, to me, I, I, I don't get the ESG term because to me, G is kind of like table stakes. If you haven't got the G and you're an institutional investor, you should give you should give people their money back. You know, yeah. I mean, also in in in, in terms of that um, question about about the G, because I mean that's one of your focuses. But I think in your book you spend quite a lot of time explaining why it's so important to understand the trustworthiness of um, of management. I mean, what what kind of things do you look for? How do how do you tell? I mean, you mentioned the Toronto's where. Where well, where you had this glittering um, array of people on the board, and also um, there was Greensill Capital, which obviously had some kind of you know luminaries, if you know, depending on your your take on the you know political establishment in the UK um, involved in it. I mean, how 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 do you how what are your kind of go to things to look for? Well, funny, I just wrote about this last week um, or two weeks ago, and I used the example of Theranos because it had. General James Mattis on the board. Now, I'm sure General James Mattis is a, you know, an exemplary individual. I'm sure he's a brilliant board member. But what he knew about this particular blood testing product, I would wonder. They had two former secretaries of state on the board, both in their 90s. I think one was 93, one was 97. And you, you know, hopefully they had the board meetings in the morning because in the afternoon there might be a bit more sleeping going on. And it's this, I mean, it's, it's the same as um, SBF, the FTX saga, you know, interviewing Clinton and Blair. By associating yourself with these well-known people, you give yourself an aura of respectability. And it would be obvious after the fact that if we found that there was, you know, one of these ESG plays was up to no good. I, I mean, I, I, I say this, I don't know that there is one, but if there wasn't, I'd be surprised. And if there was, I wouldn't be in, in the least bit surprised. Yeah. And I mean, also back to that question of um, governments, gov governance, in terms of, um, you know, potential red flags, what, what kind of things are you looking for? What kind of constitutes um, well, a... good, good governance and what's kind of sloppy behavior? Well, there's all sorts of things. I mean, when I looked at Greensill and Mark Rubenstein and I did an article on Greensill, the July, it was probably 18 months before it all imploded. And we'd both chatted about, about it and we could see that it was obvious that there was something odd about the business, but we hadn't really looked at it in any detail. So when we started to look at it and I pulled the Greensill capital accounts from company's house, it was hilarious because you know just opened the opened the accounts and I think twelve directors resigned on one day. I think mm, that's unusual, but there could be. I mean, there could there could be plausible explanations for that. I mean, there could be a reason for yeah. that. But there was one non-executive director who joined and resigned like six weeks later, and I've forgotten I've forgotten the name of the person, but it was a well-known public company non-executive, professional non-executive director type person. You think, well, that's quite unusual because 
what it suggests is that you've gone in and you've had a look and you've said, actually, this doesn't look like something I want to be associated with. And it's those sorts of things that, you know, attract my attention from the government's perspective. So it's who's on the board, how big is the board, are the people qualified, are they there to represent you, or are they the founder's cronies? You know, where you see a board, the the old board of Rolf Lauren. So Rolf is, I'm thinking, 80, early 80s. Doesn't look it. You know, he's well, well kept. But all the board members were in their 70s, or some of them in their 80s. There were only three board members who were below the age of 60. One was the chief executive. One was Hubert Jolie, who's a... A retailer who's a non-executive director, been on the board for several years, and one was David, the son of the founder. The board looks awful. When you now fast forward to today, they've done an amazing job because they've actually completely reconstituted the board, and it looks like a proper board again. But just who's on the board, and are they? Why are they there? That's what you yeah. ask yourself. So, why is General James Mattis on the board of Theranos? Well. Probably because he's getting paid a, a lot of money. And is he the best person? Now, obviously, I'm, I, and I have no idea if Mattis is on other boards, and I don't mean to express any concern about any other boards that he's, that he's on. You have to ask yourself, well, is he an obvious person? Is he there to represent my interest? Does he know what he's doing? Is it, does it fit with his background? Do his skills fit with that organization or is he there to make him make everybody look good and make it look like a proper thing and theranos is a great example because henry kissinger was on the board yeah. and you think well henry kissinger is a pretty smart guy right i mean you've got i mean quite an amazing guy but even he and you would imagine that henry kissinger must be a very rich man i mean you know if he writes a book it's going to sell quite a few copies um but even he was lured by the money, it would appear. I mean, I don't, I don't have any knowledge, obviously, of it, but you can, you can ask yourself, well, why would you go on the board? Well, yeah. I mean, it also, I mean, from an outsider's perspective, it kind of looks almost like a cozy club. Something like that. I suppose that kind of, uh, there's something uh, in what you're saying which revolves around the idea of kind of diversity in the board and, um, you know, how how investors should think about um diversity i mean uh obviously there are lots of different ways people try and measure it but it, it, when when you're looking at a board and its makeup what what do you what are you thinking about but what what i said in the article a couple of weeks ago was that what i look for is cognitive diversity because you know what color people are what nationality they are what gender they are doesn't really make any difference um, obviously, if you've got an all-male, white, fat, middle-aged board, then you, you have a certain type of individual and you have a certain type of group think. And obviously, you want to avoid that. Um, obviously, you want to have some women on the board because women have got a different perspective. Women are half the world and half the customer base of any consumer-facing company. Um, but the cognitive diversity, understanding that is actually quite difficult. Because how do you know? How do you know how these people think? And I find that I find this area quite fascinating, but quite difficult. Because 
even if you speak to an institution that prides itself on understanding the people, so a good example of that would be Bill Ackman, Pershing Square, because they often go into a, a, a company and, and effect change and want new chief executives. Even they have got, and they've got a lot of resources at their disposal, have got a limited capacity to actually understand, go in behind the, the fabric of it. And you very rarely get the opportunity to meet the non-execs. I mean, I have been to, you know, analyst meetings where the, a non-exec's pitched up, but it's not common. So it's not, even if you're, even if you're a, a big institutional investor, you don't necessarily know what's going on at, at, at board level. I mean, you might have knowledge of a non-exec from his executive role elsewhere or a past executive role. And collectively, there might be good knowledge within your organization of the whole people. But the, the, the knowledge is generally spread around. You know, so X knows one person, NED1, and Y knows NED2, and Z knows NED3. But it's not one person that has got the overview. So it's actually really, really difficult to form a judgment. And then you used a phrase there, which was fascinating but difficult, which I think, I, I think kind of um, really um, it encapsulates a lot of what, you know, when, when people talk about ESG, which seems like the concept which seems so broad, but a lot of what people are trying to put in there probably is this, you know, fascinating but difficult um, stuff. And um, I, I know you've looked at kind of, you know, ESG in, in terms of your training and, um, you know, if, if you can use it. But um, I, I, I'm, I'm kind of wondering when, when, you, when you did that, how much of um, what, what you found was actually, you know, this is just the stuff that's required to be a good analyst. This is, you know, being a good analyst is fascinating and difficult and it's not all in the accounts. It's kind of, you know, it's a lot of it's doing the work around it and seeing how it works for the whole team. Yeah, well, I mean, my process starts with the, the financial numbers and, you know, financial numbers at the end of the day are what you're at, you know, what it's all about. And that's at the heart of the, of the matter. But interestingly, I mean, I looked at doing an ESG course probably four years ago. And in fact, your last guest, Ben Yule, I sat down with Ben um, in COVID, actually. We sat down and um, looked because he's helped contribute to the CFA Society's course on ESG, which has been tremendously popular. And when I'd done this work, um, and I went and interviewed quite a few people to try and get behind, you know, what people who were really engaged in ESG investing, what they were looking for. And what I found was that it was actually just integral to their process. So yeah. you couldn't take the ESG out of the research because the ESG was, you know, everything that you looked at had an ESG angle to it. And I decided that actually this was sort of doing an ESG course. Yeah, I mean, you know, the CFA Society's course tells you what the UN Sustainable Goals are and goes through stranded assets and that sort of thing, which is all, you know, all very helpful and very useful. But... I wanted to do something that was a bit beyond that, but something that actually was, you know, allowing people to help them practically, because that's what I believe my courses do. I mean, I believe my courses are practical tools that people can implement. 
And I just found that the ESG was something that was too nebulous to get my hands around. I had to do some content for my Analyst Academy course, which is why the, the, the meeting with, with Ben and, and the discussions with Ben, and we, in actual fact, I ended up leaving a lot of the, the, the content I created on the cutting room floor because I, right. it was, well, it was, it was just, there was so much of it. And I just thought, you don't need to know any of this because at the end of the day, you know, what, what do you need to know if you're buying a company that's using a lot of water? Have they got a sensible idea of how much water they're using and a plan to use less? If you're, you know, if you're buying into a, a stock that's got a carbon emission, have they got an idea about how they'll mitigate the emissions? Uh, is it possible that they could be displaced by competitors? If you're buying a car company, what do they know about electric vehicles? Um, the, you know, the questions are fundamental, but quite simple. And yeah, you could you could look at how much, how many emissions GM produces in its factory. You could look at you know what's the fuel consumption of its cars, but the, that's kind of irrelevant. What you what you need to understand is have they got an idea about how to get those numbers wherever their starting point is? Have they got an idea how to get those numbers down? And have they got a strategy how to deal with electric vehicle yeah. production? Yeah, the changing realities that yeah. the companies face and the risks which are coming down the pipe. And there and there's some other stuff like, you know, where are the factories and you know, are the factories they all in Bangladesh and the Maldives and at risk of rising sea levels. But those things are so difficult to get your hands around and probably so irrelevant because they'll just build a factory somewhere somewhere else. You know, it's not yeah, there be there could be, you know, a risk that some of your fixed assets will be not worth what they're in the books at or in ten years time. But is it really gonna it's not gonna enough to move the needle on an investing proposition? Yeah. So. And also something I'm really interested about um, in terms of this whole kind of, you know, idea of ESG and your um, focus on, on the numbers is one of the big um, ideas which seems to sit behind a lot of the thinking revolves around intangibles in the fact that intangible assets, most of them are never seen on, on the balance sheet because they're treated as an expense or they are things which... Um, you know, aren't ever going to be financial things like the ideas like natural capital, um, and you know, culture to an extent also. Although you could say, you know, your investment in training, you know, things like that, create it. Um, I mean, you you look in your courses, I think, at this question of intangibles and how to appreciate appreciate them. And I was just wondering if you could explain how, as someone who's focused very much on the fundamentals, you kind of filled that into your process. Well, the, I mean, there's two aspects to this there's the financial treatment of intangibles mm -hmm. and there's the intangibles that aren't in the accounts and i tend to focus less on the intangibles that aren't in the accounts because that's part of the whole research process is the company a good employer well if you're planning on owning a stock for the long term you probably want them to treat their employees well because if they don't their employees are going to go somewhere else right i mean that's kind of you know that sort of stuff is fairly obvious um, as regards the financial side of it, there's quite a lot of confusion. And what the way I teach it is I try and extract information from the intangible notes that give you an understanding of how aggressive or conservative 
the CFO is. There's a lot of information right. contained in that. And um, a good example would be Aston Martin. Yes. So you look at Aston Martin intangible assets. I mean, it's fascinating. There's a lot of them. There's a big number. And, um, you know, one of the tricks with Aston Martin was that they were capitalizing 200 out of their 210 million R&D spend. And people were quite happy with them doing this. And I'm not saying that they were wrong to do it. It was a perfectly reasonable accounting policy because they were incurring research and development and tooling costs for the new SUV or the then new to be developed SUV. When the SUV came into production, which was, I think, in July 2020 or July 2021, July 2021, I think, um, what then happened was that they like a billion quid of R&D sitting on the balance sheet that suddenly had to be amortized against the production of the SUV. So lo and behold, the SUV wasn't as profitable as it might otherwise be because obviously there's a limited life to the, the product. And so what I, what I teach is looking at things like that and also the difference in accounting policies between the US and, and Europe or IFRS and yeah. um, Europe and Asia. Because in the US, you aren't allowed to capitalize much of this stuff. And in Europe or under IFRS, you can. And so you get these inconsistencies in treatment, which gives you an earnings picture that can be quite different depending on which side of the Atlantic you're based. And obviously, that that sort of thing is very important in understanding the valuation of the business. One of the ideas you've spoken about in terms of um, this kind of um, glut of um, aggressive accounting that, that you've seen going on is the idea of the bezel. And, um, you know, this build-up of... Um, activity which is maybe hard to justify and then the fact that there's um that there's a natural unwinding process when the business cycle turns and i I just wonder if you could um kind of explain that idea and explain it probably a bit better than i have and and, and, um where where we are now with with it well we're we're at the sort of point of maximum risk for investors i mean um Mm. you know there's as we as we are recording this, this is a massive debate about soft landing, hard landing, and because the stock market has gone up and because the economic numbers have remained pretty strong, people feel comfortable. Yeah. I mean, soft landings are quite uncommon. <laughs> you know, you should always look at the base rate. And, um, but I think what is inevitable, and it's a, we're already seeing it, is margin contraction. So, you know, we, we're entering this period. We started off a period of, you know, extreme valuation mm-hmm. and extreme margins and extreme returns and extreme share, capital share of the, of, of, the, of the pie. So it would be unusual if we didn't have some sort of mean reversion. And it seems highly likely to me that margins will be under pressure over the next couple of years because inflation tends to pressurize margins because you tend to only get your price increases through with a time lag after you've suffered the, the cost increases. Yeah. So, in, you know, in, inflation is, has got a, a detrimental effect on, on margins. And what you see, um, every single fraud that you see being unwound is as a result of some unexpected downturn in, in the business environment. 
you see a lot of frauds being unwound in recessions. You see a lot of frauds being unwound if there's a particular issue with the business cycle. So Patisserie Holdings, the parent company of Patisserie Valerie, why did it go bust? Well, it went bust in the summer of 20... Well, it didn't go bust, but it ran out of money in the summer of 2018. Why did it do that? Because with the hottest summer since 1976, people were eating ice cream, not going into the shop, not going into the cafes and eating tea, eating cake and drinking tea. That's my that's my guess. And, you know, they suffered their own mini business cycle, which meant that, the, you know, the finance director was keeping allegedly two sets of books. One set of books that was the, the real numbers that he had to use to pay the VAT man. And he... You know, he fell short of his own budgets and he couldn't, didn't have enough money to pay the VAT bill. And then it all unwound from there. And I think we'll see lots more of those sort of idiosyncratic issues over the next couple of years. And I'd be very surprised if we didn't have, not necessarily a huge spate of frauds, but a lot of companies where you find that their earnings aren't what you thought they were. Right. Because, you know, the tide goes out and then you find who's been swimming naked, as Mr. Buffett says. And what we'll find is that a lot of CFOs have been very aggressive in the basis of calculating their earnings and reporting their earnings. And when they run out of road, because the elastic gets stretched, because every year you do a bit more and do a bit more, and then you run out of provisions to release, you run out of reserves to release, and they then get a downturn in revenue, and you're you're really in, in trouble because you can't massage the numbers anymore. You've got no padding left. And I think that I will see a lot of that. I mean, also, um, in terms of uh, the type of um, aggressive accounting you're seeing, is, is there a trend in terms of, of, of what companies are, are doing to make to flatter their numbers? Well, the, is it a bit of everything? Well, I, I'm, I'm going to write a thing about the big five tech stocks. Because all the tech stocks are, are the, the well, all the tech stocks are less conservative than they were a few years ago. So even right. a company like Microsoft, Microsoft was a paragon of financial virtue for, for years and years and years. Even Microsoft is now starting to do funnier things with its accounting, starting to be that little bit more aggressive, no longer as conservative as it used to be in the past. Now, you could argue, and it would be a very legitimate argument to say that they were overly conservative in the past. Uh-huh. But, but, you know, if they're overly conservative, they'll have a higher valuation. Yeah. And when they become less conservative, you expect the valuation multiple to contract. And what the street, the sell side, is extremely bad at is understanding that the quality of the earnings is going down. And therefore, just because it's a stock has always been on rated on between 22 and 23 times, and therefore, I'm going. My price target is going to be 22 and a half times my earnings forecast. What they don't understand is that you lose a point or a turn and a half of PE because your earnings aren't as conservative as they used to be. I just want to ask you about another sector, which is kind of um, having to deal with regulatory pre pressures, or or more more broadly, the energy transition. Because um, I know that you've um, you're very interested in the idea of looking at capacity in industries as a really good gauge of um, you know, the potential to make money. And um, we, we've had a lot of um, comments recently about um, the fact that there's um, not that investment isn't going into fossil fuels from big oil companies. You know, they're returning lots of cash basically instead. And um, but also the 
the renewables which are needed to replace that aren't really there at scale. And um, I was just wondering whether you think that concept applies to um, the energy sector at the moment, that um, we're kind of dealing with a period where, um, because of the transition, the um, you know demand and supply maybe aren't going to match up so neatly. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I've been adding to my energy investments, um, you know, my personal portfolio. What I think is quite interesting is BP was up 10% on its results because they said that they were going to invest more in fossil fuel, which is, you know, quite ironic, right? But I mean, when I sort of stand back from this and I look at the, the picture, so if you look at a BP or a Shell or a Total or a Chevron or an Exxon, I, I mean, to the, the Americans have sort of said, well, we know about oil, we don't know about renewables, so we're going to stick to oil. And that's, you know, if, we, if we've got spare money left over, we'll give it back to our shareholders. BP and Shell have said, well, you know, we've been around for a long time, we want to, you know, have an enduring business, so what we're going to do is we're going to transition. Well, the fact is that if all these companies, BP, Shell, Total, if they all try and start building wind farms and buying wind assets or solar assets, what's going to happen? The price of these assets are going to go up through the roof because it's, you know, you've got all these, you know, you've got 50 sumo wrestlers trying to get through the same narrow door. And so, you know, they, they'll push the, say, they push the price of these up there'll be overcapacity in those industries. So they'll build too much wind power, too much solar power, almost inevitably. And the, the, you know, the, the basic energy needs, which we will continue to be driving petrol and diesel cars for some quite considerable time. I don't know how it pans out because I think, you know, when the UK says that you can't sell a petrol car from 2035 or 2030, I've forgotten what the, the date is for the different countries. Um, it seems to me that, you know, in 2028, if you think that petrol cars aren't going to be sold in 2030, you might hesitate about buying a petrol car and you might say, oh, well, you know, I'm not going to buy that S-class diesel. I'm going to buy a Tesla because what's the value of my S-class diesel going to be in five years' time because nobody will want a diesel car. So I think there, there's a massive issue all around the transition, which I think is very difficult to get, get, your, get your head around. And the, the idea that the oil companies try and move into renewables, I think, is a massive investment risk giving the money back to shareholders, at least the shareholders can then direct it to the new energy. And and that seems like a, a more sensible way for the capital markets to allocate capital. Yeah. But the 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 whole thing is fraught with all sorts of problems. Because of course, you know, we can't build enough electric cars to replace all that. Yeah, no, it's, it's uh, a I mean, transition. The, yeah, <laughs> the transition is quite complicated. So um I don't know. I, I think it's a very interesting. I think it's a very interesting area, and I, I don't pretend to have any answers to this puzzle. Um, but I wrote a, a, a big piece in 2017, 2018 about the automotive industry, saying that I wouldn't like to own any of these stocks because how do you resolve this question? You've got all this, all these assets tied up in producing 
something that is not going to not you're not going to be producing it in 20 years you've got to then make the transition to producing something new and quite different and i mean it's a radically different design radically different thing to produce and then you've got the whole mobility issue because people don't want to you know millennials don't want to own cars they want to yeah use a zip car or, or whatever so the, you know, I did this thing about you know how the automotive industry is faced with insurmountable challenges, and they just made it. You know, they might be cheap, but probably probably not because you know if you you try and take a ten year view, how do you know who the winners are going to be? Uh -huh. Because the winners of the future aren't the winners of the past, or aren't necessarily. Yeah, yeah, and it's, I mean, it's a, it's a hard business to make money, even when things are. Well, and it goes back. So your original question is about the capital cycle, and the yeah. problem with the automotive industry is that there is capacity to make eighty, a hundred million. Forgotten, there's about eighty in pre-COVID. I think the, the global automotive in, um, market was something like eighty million cars, and there's capacity to make a hundred or hundred and ten. I've forgotten what, what the numbers are. There's huge overcapacity, and as you transition to electric. You're going to have even more overcapacity because you might not have sufficient supply of electric vehicles, but you'll have too much capacity of vehicles. And and that the capital cycle is, is an incredibly useful discipline, this idea of looking at supply rather than demand. Steve, it's been terrific to chat to you and have you on the show. Um, thank you very much. Well... Thank you for having me. And my website is behindthebalancesheet.com and you can find me on Twitter at Steve Clapham. We'll put that all in the show notes too. Right. Thank you. Thank you.